You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Property last Sunday. I don't know how many of you were, but we had our worship service out by the lake. And uh, I just remember just thanking God for the gift we have in that property and how beautiful it is. It's such a beautiful sight. It's a place that you can go and you can just rest and say, Lord, I'm so thankful that you're God of everything, God of creation, God of my life. And um, as I was uh, looking at the property, I also realized that there's, there's part of our property that's not so beautiful. There's, when you look at the ground closely, there's a lot of dead spots, there's a lot of dead grass, and, and uh, I kind of smiled, and this is the way my mind works, that God teaches me a lesson, and he says, Doug, you see how I see the world? I created the world to be the Garden of Eden. I created it to be perfect, and you're living in a world that's pretty good, but you don't understand the vastness of how great I made everything to be, and how wonderful someday it will be when everything is recreated. And uh, as I was looking at the grass, I was thinking of the parable of the sower and the seeds. That in this life, there are some people who, when they hear the word of God, that they're like, like dead soil. There's nothing that grows in it. The, the seeds fall and they, just, they, they, don't, they don't get root there. And then some people, they, they hear the, the word of God and they're like the dead grass. The worries of this life choke it out, they just die. And there's other ones that the grass is still there, but you can see there's some pretty major weeds around that are vying for competition. And those weeds make them take their eyes off Christ and they die. And then there's some grass that still flourishes and it's green and it grows. And God says, that's what my people are like in this world. And I'm so patient that even though this is what a lot of the world looks like, I look for all those ones that are going to respond to me that will grow in godliness. And I wait until the perfect time, until the full amount of people have brought to Christ before I come to recreate this world. We have a really amazingly patient God, and I am so glad for that. And I'm also glad that we have a God who has great things in store for those who surrender to him. He really wants us to grow in godliness, which means he wants us to become like him because he's love, and he wants us to experience his love. Not because he's domineering, not because he's anything that's nasty. Everything that's good is him, and he wants us to experience that in him. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be working through the book of Titus. I'll ask you to open up your Bibles now to Titus chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 844. Uh, We're going to be looking through the the book of Titus, but we're, we're looking at it with a lens, and the lens is growing in godliness. We're specifically saying, how is Titus helping us understand what it means to be a maturing disciple of Jesus Christ? So I want you to understand that, because as we've gone through the book of Ephesians, Exodus, as we go through books, we we exposit as well as we can that book and what's the message of the text. But I want you to know as we're going through Titus, we're going to be doing the same thing, but we do have a lens of saying, let's pinpoint the areas that we can see what God is teaching us about what it means to mature in Him. So with that, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, 
a man whose children believe and, not are, and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are ruining whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Please be seated. Well, Titus, Paul writes to Titus, and within the first three verses, he gives us the basis of godliness. Right off the bat, he wants us to be aware. In his greeting, in his greeting to his letter to Titus, he says, this is the basis of godliness. And the first thing is faith in God. If you want to grow in godliness, there has to be a starting point, and that starting point is that you believe in God and that you have trusted God with your life. Paul says, I am a servant of God. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of God's elect. Paul knew who he was in Christ. His identity was grounded in his Savior. If you want to grow in godliness, that has to be true for you. That when you think of who you are, the first person you think of is Jesus Christ because he is the one who tells you who you are. The phrase in the NIV that says a, stu a, a, a servant of God is actually better to say a, a slave of God. Uh, Karen mentioned about slavery in the world. And slavery to anything other than God is terrible. But slavery to God is beautiful. It's saying, God, I give everything to you. I die to myself and I live in you. You are the one who gives me all good things. You are my life. I live in you. That's what slavery in Christ is. And that's what Paul says, that he is a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So that's the starting place for us. There's a book uh, that was written by a man named John MacArthur, and he says this, When we call ourselves Christians, we proclaim to the world that everything about us, including our very self-identity, is found in Jesus Christ because we have denied ourselves in order to follow and obey him. So when I am a Christian, that means that I don't live for myself, I live for Christ. I don't know about you, but I find that hard to do quite regularly. I often can look through my day and say, wow, Doug, you got really caught up in your own affairs, in your own desires, and I didn't really think in the last three hours about what Christ might want me to do because I was just in the routine of daily living. But that's not how it's supposed to be. 
And more and more, God will transform our minds to be thinking about him regularly so everything we're doing reflects what he would want done and the way he'd want it done for the reason it should be done. So from faith in God, Paul then says, there needs to be a knowledge of truth. We have the gospel. We can know how to be saved from our sins. We can have the the hope of salvation. But we need, if we're going to mature, we need to be growing in the knowledge of truth. We need to be students of God's word. There's no way around that. We need to honor God by spending time in his word and by allowing that to be ingrained in us and allowing him to transform our hearts by spending time in the truth. Specifically, Paul is talking about the truth of the gospel. I think it's hugely important that for all of us, and when we look at the Bible, that we see that there is a redemptive narrative from the beginning of Genesis all the way through Revelation. It's a solid story. And God wants us to understand what Christ has done, what God has done to take us to where we are today and to give us hope for the future, for what's still to come. There's still so much coming in Christ that we don't understand, but that we hope for because we know that God is good. Truth needs to lead to transformation. If we're just people who have head knowledge, that is not what it means by a knowledge of truth. The knowledge of truth is demonstrated in a transformed life. And that transformed life is what happens when we become godly. So sound doctrine, when we understand the Bible correctly, it helps us to lead into to right behavior, to sound behavior. Okay, so we need to know the truth, and the truth transforms how we view life so that we live life differently. And quite often we do things reverse, and we just try to do right things without understanding what truth is. So Paul says that faith in God and knowledge in the truth, that is what leads to godliness. That's what leads to spiritual growth. And all of this is grounded in the promise of God. I found it interesting, I was just thinking that you could actually look at this as a reverse. As a believer in Christ, I can say, I want to grow. So I have faith in Christ, I grow in, his, in the knowledge of truth, and then I allow his Holy Spirit to grow me. But can you think for this world, when we say that we hope that people will come to know Jesus Christ, how is that most likely to happen? It's most likely to happen when they see people who have grown in godliness and say, I wonder why that is. And then they're willing to hear the truth and eventually then they might be willing to open up their heart to Christ and to receive salvation themselves. So for us who know Christ, the process is this way, but for the world, the observing world, it's so important that they see believers who are maturing in their faith that represent Christ well because it's the Holy Spirit living in them. And not just because they're striving to do good works, but that they've really surrendered to Christ and it's the Holy Spirit living in and through them. There's a danger of making an idol of godliness. We know from reading the Bible how a Christian should look, right? We think of things like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, if I know that's how a Christian should be, shouldn't I strive to have each of those things in my life? Shouldn't I be doing all I can to just live out those good virtues? Well, that sounds good and it can be okay, but you do that in your own strength and eventually you get tired of being kind some days. Some days you just don't want to be faithful. Sometimes you're not joyful and you're just tired in your own strength. And if you do it on your own, eventually it's going to fail. What the Bible tells us is don't make an idol of godliness. Worship Christ, abide in Christ, and everything else will come. 
J.I. Packer said, The holiest Christians are those who are fully focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, not on holiness. Everything that we're meant to do should help us focus on Christ. When you have a discipline to help you do something that you hope will make you a better person, the only way that's actually going to work is if that discipline helps you think about Jesus, who then transforms your heart so that you desire to do the good thing. Does that make sense? Sometimes I feel that I try to do things because I know it's right, but I still don't desire to do it. And God's the one who says, Doug, I'll change your heart. I'll change your desires. And then that will just flow out naturally. You'll do what I desire. And uh, that's very hopeful. Uh, I saw this little image here is that sometimes then in the, in the fact of trying to pursue holiness, we actually end up pursuing phoniness. And we have a life that doesn't resonate of Jesus Christ. We have all the capturings of a Christian culture, of a moral lifestyle, but there's the absence of the Holy Spirit in it, in us. And so be very careful that we are always pursuing relationship with Christ and that you enjoy the blessing then of a transformed life with him. Paul says that both faith and knowledge are rooted in something, and that's in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. So this is the basis of our faith and our knowledge of the truth. Hope here is not a fanciful word. It's not like, man, I sure hope it doesn't rain today, or I hope the Bombers win their next football game. It's not that kind of a hope. This is a hope in God's promise. It's a hope that says, I am sure of what's going to happen because the one who promises it always follows through. So this hope has no inkling of, I don't know if it will happen or not. It's this certainty. I have hope of eternal life. And we need to remember that when we hear eternal life, that it's not so much about going to a place someday for anything else. It's about life in Christ. And this is eternal life, Jesus Christ. We have relationship with Christ. That's the hope that we have when we have faith in God and we have knowledge of the truth. So here's a question. What does godliness look like? How do we know that we're in a maturing relationship with God? Now, Titus doesn't talk about this directly, but throughout the book of Titus, I think you're going to see all these aspects of what we call a discipleship continuum, that you'll see them evident. And that's some of the things that we're going to be pointing out as we go through the next couple weeks. Uh, This discipleship continuum that shows the progress from infancy towards maturity is simply a, a framework to help us consider what God is doing in our life and how we can see that we are actually being transformed by him. So if we're asking, what does godliness look like? Well, it looks like growth, right? It has to start somewhere. So at some point, there's infancy. And at some point, there's maturity. So, so there's a description of that process. And, and it's all about Christ. If you want to know what godliness looks like, it's the person of Jesus Christ. And the maturity is that we become like him. This is the hope of our salvation, that there is an amazing God who loves us so much and he is so patient with us that he will transform us to represent him and to become like him. So that, in a nutshell, is what godliness looks like. It looks like us becoming more like Jesus. So what are some of the areas that God works on in our lives to make that happen? First of all, he works in our character. And in time, he helps our whole life 
to be integral, that everything about our lives, our emotions, our thoughts, they all reflect the person of Jesus Christ. And this won't happen until we're in heaven, but throughout this life we have the joy of seeing this progress. And today the message is specifically focused on this part of the continuum, about character to integrity. Next week we're going to be focusing on uh, Titus 2, and we're going to be talking about how when we become believers, he gives us a new family. He puts men and women in our lives who are now our brothers and sisters. And in time, as we have maturity in that, we have what's called koinonia. And koinonia would be a, a deep shared intimacy with a few people, a deep shared intimacy that's grounded in Christ. Our lives are, are very closely interwoven because of the Holy Spirit, and we share our lives with them. The week following, we're going to focus on service, that God puts in our, our heart a desire to serve and an understanding that we've been entrusted with gifts and talents that he wants to use to bless others and bring glory to him. And as we mature, we realize that he doesn't just want us to serve, he wants our heart to become one of servanthood, that everything I do that I understand, I do this for the glory of God. I do this as unto God. So it doesn't matter what I'm doing, how mundane my job is, or how mean the person I'm working for is. It doesn't matter about any of those things. I do things as towards God. And that's how he wants me to approach all of life. And then we have gratitude. When God takes a hold of my life, I start praising him because he's worthy. I realize again that I have been forgiven of much. My sins are not counted against me. I have a beautiful future in front of me. And I have gifts from God that he gives me. Gratitude just springs forth of anyone who knows Jesus. If that isn't in our heart, then we have to wonder, do I really understand who Jesus is and what he's done? And as I mature, that gratitude grows into praise. All throughout life, all throughout my day, I can praise God. It doesn't really even matter the circumstances, whether my circumstance is a pleasant one or a hard one. I praise God because I know in everything it will come out for my good in him. And sometimes, we've talked about this before, it's the hardships that we'd never want on anyone. It's those exact hardships that cause us to become more like Christ and cause us to have greater intimacy with him. So if I had my wish, as far as feeling, I wouldn't want them. But when God allows me to go through them, I realize I become more and more in love with him when my eyes are on him. I learn to praise him in everything. And the last part of the continuum is this idea of witness. I, when I get to know Jesus, I love him so much, I want other people to know about him. You do that with anybody you love in your life. If it's your best friend, if a baby's born into your family, if someone gets engaged, you can't help but talk about the people you love. And so we witness, we tell people. But as we mature more and more, God does something just really miraculous through our lives. And he, he just, he, it's called fruitfulness. It's just the Holy Spirit living through us. And often God is doing things we're not even aware of. But just because of our presence and the Holy Spirit in us, he is causing things to be fruitful and abundant. He changes atmospheres because his Holy Spirit is present in us where we go. Those are some of the things that a mature, maturing Christian looks like, what godliness looks like. And we'll be looking at more deeply in the days ahead. So today, we're looking at more or less the continuum of of character to integrity. And uh, Paul's writing this letter to someone specific. He's writing it to a man named Timothy. 
And uh, we don't know a lot about Timothy, a little bit from Titus, a little bit from the book of Galatians, also from 2 Corinthians. What we do know is that Paul had brought Timothy or Titus to, the, to faith. We do know that Titus was a Greek. And it's really uh, important to think that Paul calls him my son. And remember again, Paul's a Greek, Paul's a Jew, and Titus is a Greek. And at one time, those groups just wouldn't get together. And in that little phrase, we see the beauty of what God has done as far as taking hostility away between those who love Christ. There is no dividing line between you. There is no Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or woman. Everybody is united together when you're in Christ. So we know that, that Titus was a Greek, that he was a co-worker of Paul, that he was devoted and trustworthy. He had considerable people skills, and he had unquestionable integrity. People trusted Titus. And, uh, and he lived in a place, though, that was anything but reputable. He lived in a, an island called Crete. And uh, Crete is in the Mediterranean Sea. It's southeast of, uh, of Greece. <clears throat> it's a small island, maybe 120 feet long, 25 feet wide, uh, mountainous. It's got agriculture. Uh, it, yeah, so it's got the fertile soil. Um, but the people there didn't have a very good reputation. There is a large Jewish population that was under Roman control. But Paul tells us that the, their own prophets, so the, the, the people of Crete had their own prophets, and this is what they said about themselves, that, that Cretans here are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Not, not a good reputation for an island. And this is where Titus was positioned to make sure that the church would be healthy. So Paul is saying, Titus, you're in a hard spot, and a lot of the people who are going to respond to Christ have a lot of background that they have to be working against because they haven't been raised up in an atmosphere that reflects Christ at all. So I want to help you be aware of what you're going to be facing and what you need to be doing. So he starts telling Titus what it means to appoint leaders and what he should be looking for in what Paul says are elders or overseers. That word simply means aged man, but in common use, we talk about those are the church leaders, the elders, the overseers, those are the church leaders. And first of all, he says, you need to find leaders who lead well in their families. So this is verse 6. It's more or less just saying, make sure that these people have a healthy family life. And the first thing about that family life is that these, these people, that these men, they're blameless. They live above reproach. Now, this isn't something that they have earned. It's not something that they can brag about. Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us that God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This blameless comes from a relationship with Christ where he says, your sins are forgiven and now you live in me. So David was blameless, and we know King David made a lot of mistakes. What made him blameless is that when he was made aware of those mistakes, he was also humble enough to submit to God and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. That's what blameness is. That for the most part, sin isn't a characteristic of our lives, and when sin is made aware, that we confess it, and we renounce that, and we ask Christ for forgiveness, and we live in his holiness. So blameless is in the sight of God and that God chose us for that. It's his gift to us. He, he's elected us to be blameless in his sight. 
I found this image here. It's a jigsaw puzzle, and the piece in the middle says blameless, and then around the corners there's four other pieces, and on the top is God. I, I need to be blameless with God. In his sight, I need to be, when he looks at me, he sees Jesus Christ. Christ takes away anything that could cause me blame. I need to also be blameless with others, within the church, within the community, that when people point towards our lives, that there's nothing that they can point out and say, that would make me not want to consider who Jesus is. Because you're that way, I don't even want to think about Jesus. If you're a Christian and you live like that, hmm, no. These are people who are blameless. There's nothing that obstructs people from understanding who Christ is. We also need to be blameless uh, from ourselves, that there's not those con condemning thoughts about our self-worth because we realize that our worth, our worth is in Christ. And again, it's what Christ tells me about myself that's true and that I need to live in. And finally here, we need to be blameless within our families. Would you say that it's most likely your families that know you best? They see you at your highest and they see you at your lowest. And so Paul's saying, find men, find leaders who are blameless at home whose wives and children would say, yes, they're blameless. Find men who are, here it says, a husband of one, one wife, but the phrase actually is a one-woman man. So remember, Titus is on an island that's full of a lot of uh, uh, Greek people. And uh, in that age, a lot of Greek men had three women in their life. They had a wife, they had a slave girl that they might be sleeping with, and there might be a temple prostitute. So Paul's saying to these guys, you can't be like that once you're in Christ. Once you're in Christ, you're dedicated to one woman and you love her like Christ loves the church. That's what it means to be a one-woman man. And then he says that you also need to have children who are faithful. Uh, I kind of summarize the phrase that's there. We could have a whole conversation of what does it mean to be wild, disobedient children who are believing. Uh, there's different things that we could talk about that. But really what we're saying is that there's, there's a, a healthy family life. The children are respectful of the parents. There's order in the home. Um, the word for wild in this, where it says these children are wild and disobedient, that word, the word wild actually is the same word that's used to describe the prodigal son. You know, the son who ran away from his father, who wanted everything on his own, and then the son day came back. Uh, it's, it's not a pretty word at all. Um, but the word also doesn't express, the word for children here doesn't express an age limit. So this isn't saying uh, you have to be in control of your 10-year-old or your 12-year-old. This word, technon, is actually about the parent-child relationship. That for adult children, are your adult children respectful of you? Are, you in, are, are, they, are they in a relationship where they respect you and honor you because you've been a good leader in the home? So those are some of the qualities that these leaders must have in their home. And these leaders, then it says, are also entrusted with God's work. Uh, that's how the NIV reads it. A better translation is that you are stewards of God. You are God's steward. So these are men who understand that everything they have is from God and that they can only use what God has given them for his glory. They don't own it and say, Lord, I'll give part of it back to you. Everything is God's. And uh, this word actually has the picture, again, of a, of a person who is a steward of God would usually be uh, this word in Greek, means that it's usually a person who has high integrity, uh, high responsibility. Often they would be a slave in a household, and they would be caring for other slaves, caring for the owner's children, uh, caring for their, the, taking care of the money. They had a lot of responsibility. 
But when Paul uses this, this term for steward of God, he means you're responsible to preach the message of God's truth. You're responsible for the mystery of Jesus Christ, to proclaim that to others so that they can know who Jesus is. That's what you are stewards of. So question, although this is specifically written to people who are elders in the church, to Titus, uh, we all are entrusted with something from God, something that we need to be responsible for. He says he's given this to you, and now he wants you to use it for his glory. What are you entrusted with? What is it that God has put in your care? And again, thinking that the biggest thing is the gospel of salvation. And we all have access to that. We know the truth of who Jesus is and how he transforms lives. With that truth that you have, how are you being a faithful steward of, of sharing that with others for the glory of God and the good of others? How faithful are you as a steward of God? Again, please remember that that's primarily talking about the mystery of Christ, the fact that we can be in a saving relationship with him. So then he goes on and says, these stewards of God, they must be blameless, and there's a number of things that can't be in their lives. These things should not be evidenced at all. They should not be overbearing. That means they shouldn't be arrogant, they shouldn't be insecure people. They should not be quick-tempered, not prideful. Uh, how many people here like to work with someone who's hot-tempered? Probably not, right? Well, there's a hand, but I don't believe that. So, <laughs> not hot-tempered not given to drunkenness, uh, not addicted, that these people don't give control of their bodies to anything else but Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. That they don't go to any sort of substance and say, I'm going to take a risk and enjoy some pleasure in you for a moment and lose control of myself. That they're not violent. In this sense, it's meaning not a bully. They don't try to get what they want by pressuring people, by making you feel insecure or, whoa, what's going to happen? I don't want to disappoint him. They're not violent. They're, he's not, not a bully. And they don't pursue dishonest gain. They don't live for money. Money's not on the priority list. They're not greedy people. They're giving people. The only reason they'd want to have money is so they can use it again to help others and to glorify God with that. So then he goes on to some positive qualities. So those are all the things that you don't want to see in someone. And these are all the things that you do need to see in someone. I want to just stress at this point that this is not a list of what you should strive to do. Remember I said, don't make an idol of godliness. These are the things that are already evident in people who are called to be elders. They're already evident. So they're not striving to attain them. God has already developed these qualities in their life. So first of all, it's hospitable. Being hospitable is the hallmark of Christian life. And this word, unfortunately, doesn't mean the same as it does in the Bible. For us, when we read this, we think of having people over, having a party, being a good entertainer. Uh, that's not really what this word means in this use. This use, a better phrase would be to be a lover of strangers. This is the person who, who sees people in need, who have nothing, and they just go out to them. They pour out their lives. They help them. They invite them into their homes. Specifically, this means that when you see other brothers and sisters in need, you go out and you support them. 
Many times when we read in the New Testament about go to see those in prison, it's talking about believers who are in prison for their faith. People with the, who are hospitable would be the ones going to the prison and doing everything they could, making a risk, saying, you know what, I don't mind if you know I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm coming and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve my brother in need, even though this might cost me something. So this is a lover of strangers. So if this is a hallmark of all of our life, and we're saying these are qualities of an elder, but these are all things that God says are building in all of our lives because we're becoming more godly. And we look at elders because hopefully we see this exemplified in their life. But the question is, how can you grow as a lover of strangers? I'll just share with you a quick story. I was in Mexico a number of years ago on a missions trip, and I met a lady who just made me want to become more hospitable. I just saw Christ in her life. She had nothing, nothing, lived in a little shack. And she came to me, and she talked through an interpreter, and she said, Doug, I, I, I came to know Jesus a few years ago. And she told me about the heart that God had given her for, for children. And so she just lives, if you can imagine, uh, miles of shacks that everybody just lives. No, no real floor, just mud. When it rains, it's dirty, it's muddy. She just lives in a, a shack, a shanty. And uh, anyway, she told me about how uh, one day she had been watching kids playing soccer. She'd watch them all the time. And it wasn't long before she realized that three of these children were alone. Their parents had just left. And so she invited these children to come and live with her, and she, be, uh, she became their mom. And then she said that she started realizing that she had the privilege and the responsibility to share the good news of Christ with her neighbors who didn't know Jesus yet. And she had nothing in her shack, nothing in there. She, and she said, Doug, I prayed that God would just give me a couch so that people could come into my shanty and have a place to sit, that they wouldn't have to sit on the mud. And you know what happened, Doug? She said, the next day I saw someone throwing out a couch in the garbage, and I went and I took it and I put it in my house, and I said, thank you, God, for this couch. And you know what, Doug? My house has been full of people ever since then coming to study the Word of God. You know what else? Doug, God has blessed me with two other children who don't have parents. That's humbling. That is a woman that I look at and say, wow, Lord, if, please grow my heart to the place where her heart is with you in this area of hospitability. So uh, let's grow to be lover of others. Also a lover of good things. Upright, that we have pure conduct. Holy, that we have a cleansed heart. That means that we know that Christ is forgiven of our sins and we live from that place. And disciplined that these are people who are obviously self-controlled with a purpose, and that purpose, again, is of honoring God. And then he goes on to some final qualities of an elder. And this comes to how they handle the word of God. They must be people who are steadfast in the truth. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the armor of God and having the belt of truth. These are people who obviously have the belt of truth. They know the Word of God. They live out of the Word of God. They share the Word of God. And because they know the Word of God, they're able to encourage others. They're able to go and to teach them about Christ. And they're also able to refute those who are saying things that are contrary to the gospel message. In this scenario, uh, Paul was saying, be especially leery of those of the circumcision group. If you remember early on in the New Testament when the Jews were starting to understand what it means to be a Christian, they still had a lot of uh, tradition behind them that they didn't know what to do with. And one of the things that caused complication was this idea of being circumcised to prove that you were a Jew. 
and now they were trying to carry that on to being a Christian. Well, if you're a Christian, you now need to be circumcised because that's how we do it. And Paul's saying, guys, that's what you need to be careful of. The people who might be well-intended, but they're using their tradition instead of God's word to say what's right or wrong, these are the guys who are really dangerous because they mean well, but they don't understand the truth. So they're teaching error, and they're going to lead people astray. This is exactly... Um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's a good question, though. Who are the overseers in our church? <laughs> Just because it's there, I'll ask it now. We should be aware of this. Who are people in our church, who are people in your life that when you look at, you say, your life helps me consider Christ. Because of you, I desire to be more like Jesus. Find out who those people are. Approach them. Let them know how much you uh, need their example and how we as a church also need their example. Elders are, Paul isn't just saying find one person, he's saying find a group of elders and they'll be blameless together and lead the church well. So, sorry, I got ahead of myself there, but back to what I was saying about the danger of people who are well-intended but don't understand the truth. Uh, Matthew 5, we see Jesus uh, talking with the Pharisees and he's saying, you know what, you're, you're making this argument about um, you don't really want to give to your parents. You're not going to honor them with your wealth. You're going to give it to the temple instead. Is that okay? And he says to them, you know what? You nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And this is what he says. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain because their teachings are rules taught by man. This is why it's so hugely important that we're grounded in Scripture. Because again, people can be very well-intended. They can be in a genuine relationship with God and be teachers, but they might not know the truth, and they could be teaching error. That's why we need to do the best we can to understand what God has said in His Word, and we do that together. Okay? Because otherwise, um, we could be in trouble. So, elders help us to recognize rebellion. When people are teaching something that's in addition to the gospel or contrary to the gospel. And then elders have the courage to also rebuke those people. Um, verses 13 and 16 read this. It says, uh, Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Back to verse 16. They claim to know God, by their but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So, these are people who, again, they're professing faith in Christ. They actually most likely are have faith in Christ, but they're leading people astray. Paul says these are the type of people who killed the church because they have a form of godliness, but they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. They have the trappings of Christianity, but they don't have a deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. They, ha they know enough to be dangerous. That's kind of what he's, he's getting at there. But what we need to understand, and this is the, the last point here, is that the purpose of rebuking is to restore. It's never to destroy. God loves everyone. He, he demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. God wants us to bring restoration. And when we refuse to rebuke error, we're actually keeping people from being reconciled to God and to us. We have to understand that sometimes hard things need to be done in order to bring restoration. Uh, there's a proverb that says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but kisses from an enemy can't. If a church gets unhealthy, it's probably because they're not willing to rebuke when there's things that are wrong. 
And rebuke and love is the most beautiful thing we can have because it helps us get right with Christ again. And so um, we need to be, we need people in our church who are willing to rebuke with the idea of restoration. So the last, the last verse just to read here has to do with that idea of to the pure, everything is pure. It says in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In short, it's saying this, what you believe, what's at the core of your being, transforms how you view everything else. So if Christ is at your core, you're going to see everything else through the lens of Jesus Christ, and you'll see things properly. But if you're allowing sin and selfishness to be your core, you're going to look at everything, and whether it looks good or not, you're going to have sinful intentions and wrong motives, and you can't have that. So the last question for today is, how do your beliefs display themselves in your behavior? What's at your core? And sometimes we can be really self-deceived. And so we almost have to reverse this question around and ask this. How do your behaviors tell you about your beliefs? Because if Christ is my Savior and I really believe this is true and everything in it is becoming my core, there won't be actions outside of me, the actions I have that are contrary to that. And, or if they are, there'll be ones that I ask forgiveness for and God helps uh, renew me and restore me. We're going to close off our service today by uh, singing a song, To God Be the Glory. And I think this is a good song. Just a reminder of this, that if you see someone in your life who you think of as an elder, as an overseer, one of the things that will always happen is that when you look at them, you desire to honor God. You desire to glorify God because their life points you towards Jesus Christ.